And so people fight back. So this is the double movement. On the one hand, ma market attempts to expand and causes damage in process of doing so. And the, on the other hand, the society reacts to protect itself, which means we can never get to the ideal of free market because if we ever got there, then everyone would die. <laughs> but on the other hand, so the market attempts to expand always fail because of the resistance. But at the same time, the free marketeers always say that, well, uh, the attempt uh, to create free market failed because we didn't do enough of it. You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and in corporate media. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today I talk with Assad Zaman about the 2001 edition of Karl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. Professor Zaman is a PhD economist based in Pakistan with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic. This is part one of a two-part episode, but it's also part three in a larger four-part series on Polanyi's book. Parts one and two are with Jackson Winter. Jackson and I are two smart layperson NMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and NMT. As I briefly described in part one with Jackson, Professor Zaman and I are developing a free online course called Historical Context for Real World Economics. It's almost entirely through an MMT lens, but mostly it's history, not directly MMT. However, it provides critical context for those who want to understand MMT better. The course is produced by activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. There are five lecture chapters currently being developed and I look forward to sharing them with you. The next seven lectures are all on Polanyi's Great Transformation. Links to the seven lectures plus several related sources by Professor Zaman can be found in the show notes. The Great Transformation reveals, essentially, that what we think to be a foundation of our economy and society is in fact an illusion. Specifically, Polanyi calls capitalism and its free or self-regulating market a stark utopia. By definition, a utopia, an imagined place where everything is perfect, is impossible to achieve. However, the attempt to achieve it to eliminate literally all market regulation can only result in the complete destruction of all human life and the lands they live on. This is evidenced by our increasingly likely extinction at the hands of a human-created ecological crisis caused largely by unprecedented and still-growing levels of inequality and the mass exploitation of all natural resources, including most human beings. Here's Polanyi on the first page of the first chapter. Our thesis is that the idea of a self-adjusting market implied a stark utopia. Such an institution could not exist for any length of time without annihilating the human and natural substance of society. It would have physically destroyed man and transformed his surroundings into a wilderness. Unfortunately, the only way to maintain the fiction of the self-regulating market is to continue the mass exploitation of the poor. Instead of treating human beings as the infinitely precious and unique beings they are, they are rather treated as mere interchangeable and disposable cogs to run the unending greed machines, most often under terrible conditions. Polanyi calls this grave maltreatment the commodification of labor. The only way to get human beings to submit to these terrible conditions is to threaten them with an even more terrible condition, starvation and death. As quoted in the book, starvation can tame even the wildest beast. 
not even the strongest man can overcome it. How is this starvation made possible? By eliminating the possibility of self-sufficiency. A major tool to do this was the invention of the concept of the private ownership of land. This justified the ejection of all former occupants who must now, for example, in modern society, purchase our food at a distant store. We have to drive to that store and the food plus the car and its gas must all be paid for with money, which in turn can only be obtained by laboring at the greed machines. What this all means is that the commodification of labor also requires the commodification of the land. Those being potentially annihilated by the destruction of the self-regulating market resist that destruction. This results in what Polanyi calls the double movement. This is the ideological battle that has raged for centuries, where one side tries to eliminate all market regulation, while the other tries to protect itself by imposing some. When the amount of regulations are only enough to moderately reduce that destruction, as is unfortunately most often the case, then the resistance can only perpetuate and further enable the pursuit of that stark utopia. What underlies and justifies this horror is the most dominant religion in the world, which is greed. Without Polanyi's book and his work, this religion and its byproducts of inequality and mass exploitation are made to appear normal, inevitable, and unstoppable. In other words, natural. The truth that Polanyi's history reveals, and as is reinforced by my recent interview with Wesley Wiles, is that inequality, exploitation, and greed are not unfortunate but necessary. They're deliberate choices. Those who benefit most from the self-regulating market have incentive to deceive the rest of us into thinking that these terrible things are indeed natural. This is the role played by neoclassical economics to provide that official, neutral, and natural-sounding justification. The core problem in our society is not capitalism or the free market per se, but rather the mass exploitation of the poor. Therefore, the core solution is to empower the poor. The nature of this empowerment is simple provide them with what they desperately need, like healthcare, education, a job, unpoisoned water, and a world that doesn't threaten to collapse around them. These things all serve to empower the poor, which ultimately reduces inequality of both wealth and income. We will annihilate the fiction of the self-regulating market, or it will annihilate us. There is no gray area. We will provide for those on the bottom, or we will go extinct. The first step is to emancipate ourselves from the chains of false history and false economics, and from the idea that everything horrible is unfortunate but necessary. Only then can we take a step back and start thinking of alternatives. As a final note, you'll hear some of Professor Zaman's thoughts on the potential form a sustainable future society might take. These are not ideas from the book, but his own, in an attempt to start a discussion on one of the greatest questions of our time. How do we resist and annihilate the self-regulating market, and what can and will society be like when we do? Perhaps you have some ideas of your own. Let's start that discussion. And now, on to my conversation with Asad Zaman. Enjoy. All right, great. So, <laughs> all right, good morning. How are you? Uh, good evening. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. So, it is 7 o'clock in the evening, I believe, for you, yes, right? Yes, 7.15. Okay, it is nine o'clock in the morning for me. Right. Uh, okay. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks. You know. Thanks so much for doing this. Let me get my questions up here. Okay. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. Yes. 
All right. So I read the book and it was uh, enlightening to say the least. Um, I have a whole bunch of things I want to talk about. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be asking questions directly. Right. Instead, I'm going to be summarizing major points as I understand them. And then I'm going to ask you if it's okay to elaborate on those points, to correct anything that's necessary. I think that's a great idea. Okay, good, good. So that's the style of this interview. So, okay. Um, and we're just going to get, I'm just going to get right into it. Okay, great. All right. All right. So topic number one, I'd like to start by discussing the commodification of land and labor. Right. And I want to do this to bring the idea home for average people on a personal level, because I did not understand what that meant. Um, what the commodification of land and labor meant, although I've heard that many times. Yes. And we can't reveal the details of what we spoke about, but I told you my own story related to this where it came to me what that really means. Like, I feel that. Right. So as you, as you say, our lives are infinitely precious, but we, but we are treated like – that's what you say. And then I co I, I'm continuing on, but we are treated like garbage, animals or cogs in a machine, <laughs> as if we are single-use items to be discarded often without any warning. And this affects not just our lives, but the lives of our families and the communities who depend on us. So if you could take that and elaborate and correct and whatever else you think. Yes, I think that's great. Uh, basically, we are trained to think of ourselves as cheap uh, our trained to think of ourselves as commodities for sale, as human resources, and we are taught to value our own selves as uh, being commodities. If we can get a good price for our life, that's uh, the best we hope to do. And when uh, this commodification occurs, then um, it affects everything. Basically, that's what uh, one of the p main themes of Polanyi that a market society makes the market central to everything. So we think of our lives and economists are at the forefront. They say, okay, what's the economic costs and benefits of having children? What's the cost and benefit of having of marriage? And this is, uh, and even uh, just recently somebody was saying about how uh, giving people gifts is just crazy because if you give them a gift of $100, it's unlikely to be the one that they would have chosen for themselves. So they would maximize their utility if you just give them $100. And uh, this basically completely misses the social relationships which create a society. So when we start thinking in terms of market and we start thinking that, okay, how much benefit, how much pleasure I am getting from my partner versus how much pain, and at what point does it become worthwhile to leave? This is an inhuman relationship. This is not how human relationships work. But we have forgotten. I mean, uh, there's a very beautiful quote from Polanyi, which I don't have, which basically humans are going to be stripped of their identities, and you're just an anonymous person, interchangeable with us. You don't have a history. You don't have a family. You don't have a wife. You don't have children. These are all you know, um, market relationships which can be maintained if they are beneficial and can be dropped if they are uh, too expensive for you emotionally. This accounts for the breakup families and and um, alcoholism and loneliness and everything else. Uh, the Minister of Loneliness was appointed in uh, UK because this is the greatest epidemic because we are all alone. No, there, we cannot count on anyone else to be there for us unless it is to their benefit. They will not. We are living life in a jungle uh, where it's competition, uh, survival of the fittest, and this is, the, this is not the kind of society that we would want to live in if we had a choice in the matter. Uh all right, two two follow-up points. One is that it suggests that the only way, very strongly suggests, that the only way to measure a human life is with money. And and also the idea of it that people are given the fantasy of power. And I think of two things in particular, video games and pornography, where it gives yes. you the where you're allowed to fantasize about having power 
where you so so that can be some kind a way to vent the frustration yes. that you actually don't have power. Yes, exactly. I think this is a very important point that uh, the system is so toxic that people would revolt against it. They wouldn't accept it for any reason, except for this. Uh, there is this famous uh, the myth of the ma uh, man who can rises from nothing. This is very essential that that the idea, the illusion that there are all these billionaires, uh, we wouldn't support this except for the myth that is offered that anyone has a chance to become a billionaire, which is very, very far from true. And so basically, if you're not a billionaire, it's your own fault because you didn't, um, everybody has the opportunity to do so. And yes, keeping people drugged and amused and unable to realize that their lives have a greater meaning and unable to create, uh, you see, any movement requires social connections and works through uh, such connections. So if people are isolated from each other, they, they cannot create the social movements that are required for bringing about change. So that's another aspect. But yes, you have picked up correctly on the, you know, in the old Roman times, they would have these circuses to amuse the people when there was too much starvation. So basically, as long as they have these Netflix and movies and we, we keep in a fantasy world and now we are going to go into the metaverse. So we will, we, we're not living the reality because it's just too unpleasant. And, uh, but, but by living in a fantasy world, we give up all chances of being human and uh, uh, creating change. Uh, I never thought of the uh, the Roman amphitheater of actually sacrificing like a human here and there for the thrill of thousands of other people. That, that right. that's another avenue for fantasy. Huh? That's interesting. Um, okay, topic number two. Polanyi calls free market capitalism a self-regulating market. He also calls it a fiction and, quote, a stark utopia, something that cannot and has never existed. Capitalism can't be overthrown because there's nothing to overthrow. In order to maintain this fiction, however, it requires maintaining another fiction that land and labor are commodities. The act of perpetuating these lies, this fiction, guarantees the annihilation of all land and labor meaning the entire planet. And the only way to prevent this from happening is to annihilate the self-regulating market. Right. Polanyi says is that if you want to understand history, you have to think about the double, what he calls the double movement, which means that the market has this built-in tendency, this dynamic that it wants to expand and it wants to cover everything. And if you look at how commodification has extended to areas where, which were previously considered sacred uh, in front of our eyes, like now wombs are for rent and uh, the idea that medicine was done for human service and, uh, and the Hippocratic Oath has become the hypocritical oath because doctors are in it only for money and they're trained to do, to be that. They're not so much, in fact, my, uh, some of my doctor friends say that they are valued for the amount of money they generate, not for their medical skills. So the lives they save. Yeah, exactly. So this is uh, the the market wants to expand, and the expansion of the market means death for all human beings and all the planet, because uh, everything is converted into resources to be exploited, and so people fight back. So this is the double movement. On the one hand, ma market attempts to expand and causes damage in process of doing so. And the, on the other hand, the society reacts to protect itself, which means we can never get to the ideal of free market because if we ever got there, then everyone would die. <laughs> but on the other hand, so the market attempts to expand always fail because of the resistance. But at the same time, the free marketeers always say that, well, uh, the attempt uh, to create free market failed because we didn't do enough of it. Because the stark utopia can never be achieved. I just recently saw the movie Don't Look Up, and I think it's a very beautiful um, parody of what's happening in terms of climate change, that 
there's this comet that's out to hit the planet, but the people are so busy trying to make profits off of it that um, things don't go very well. So this <laughs> is... A, <laughs> so that's... Uh, yeah, I think that any um, this market mentality is uh, deadly. It's toxic to our inner lives. In fact, I think that the... Any, I've, I'm a teacher, so I think the point of attack on this way of thinking is to start thinking about the purpose of our lives and realize that it is not to make money because that's what the market trains us to do. Once the market has got you trapped, the market philosophy that life is all about pleasure, power, profits, then you're dead as a human being. So to retain your soul, to regain your soul, um, you have to overthrow this philosophy which is imprinted on us by our school and uh, friends and social media and movies that it's all about pleasure and power and profits and and we have to overcome this and we have to regain our identities which have been stolen from us by a training that's toxic and designed to turn us into commodities Near the end of the book, Polanyi says that the problem is not the Industrial Revolution and its big machines, that it's self, what he calls self-gain, which I interpret as greed hmm. and, and hedonism and using other human beings in order to service your own greed and hedonism. Right. I agree with that. Okay. Um, I'm going to jump to another question which relates to what you just said. Uh, but before I do, actually, I haven't seen Don't Look Up, but uh, I saw the movie Encanto, which is a Disney uh, yeah. a Disney film. Yeah. Um, now a third of it is incredibly dumb, but <laughs> if you can set aside that third, mm. uh, the home and the family in the movie is really a powerful analogy for the climate crisis mm. and that the home and the magic is an, an analogy for the free market. And that the, the, the little girl, the star of the movie is the analogy for, is the analogy for humanness as opposed to, you know, basically collectivism as opposed to individualism. Um, and um, mm -hmm. there was something really very interesting in that movie. And I, I went away, like my family enjoyed it, but mm -hmm. I went away like really feeling like this is, there's something much more powerful here. So in Canto. Right. Um, okay. So my question, the, another question in my list, but I'm going to jump to it instead of, mm -hmm. Resistance to self-regulating markets prevents annihilation for yes. the reasons that you just said, the double movement, but also paradoxically perpetuates the self-regulating market. So the question is, is how do we resist the self-regulating market and beat it as opposed to just perpetuate it? And so like how much do we need to dismantle of the modern world in order to decommodify labor and land? So like... Does this inevitably mean we have to go back to, for example, feudalism? Uh, no, no. Um, well, okay. First of all, let us understand that this is the burning question of the time. There is a cancerous religion uh, of the market society. And this is one thing that one must understand, that economic theory is a religion. It is a faith in uh, the powers of the market to solve all problems and the power of science to all solve all problems. This faith is completely false. There's uh, Science will never solve the problems of heartbreak except by giving you an injection to suspend your uh, critical judgment. And similarly, how you can build relationships, how you can become a mature person, how can you can grow spiritually, these are things which are completely beyond the reach of science but there is the theology of science and the and the religion of economics that is ferociously pushed pushed upon us as the solution to all human problems once you understand that this is a religion and that now it is the religion of mankind it is the most powerful religion ever imagined and this is a new development that is what polani said that among all cultures and societies it has been understood that humans are not for sale. Uh, this is the soul system. So it's a new thing that has come into being. It's, it's something which 
I think has never happened. So the issue of how it can be overthrown, uh, this is very important, but nobody really knows uh, how it can be done. I have some ideas. Uh, actually, I think that very few people think in these terms. Most people are thinking that, okay, the Marcus society is causing some problems, so let's fix those problems. But to say that we, we want to abandon the market society altogether, well, I think, for example, living in communes is a good, and, and living close to nature and uh, minimizing our uh, consumption levels, living simple and plain lives, and uh, our entertainment being our friends and society rather than uh, the media which turn us into morons. These are the ideas that need to be incorporated, but how to create a coherent uh, uh, response which is powerful enough to overcome the enormous power of the market, this is something I don't know. I have some ideas and I have, I'm actually working on a line of attack, uh, but uh, that is... Uh, I mean, I think that's a burning problem we need to solve and we need to solve it together. And I can't offer any guarantees for any solution because I think this is a unique problem in the history of mankind that uh, we haven't seen before. Well, it relates. this relates to what you said to me or pointed me to or something and that we saw a Bill Mitchell article coincidentally that same day on the same topic, which is it All must right. start with you personally. Somehow yes. – it must start yes. with you personally. Absolutely. Yes, I think that's true. That is the, regardless of the broad outlines of the solution, the first step is to uh, regain, to emancipate ourselves from the concept that we are human resources, realize that our life is finite, it is infinitely precious, every moment of it is uh, valuable, and it cannot be purchased by for all the gold in the world. Uh, this is a, a concept. Now make it real. Make it, to make it real, you have to work on yourselves. Maybe um, trying to striving for enlightenment is the answer. And I think that's definitely part of it. But anyway, recapturing our identity, refusing to sell ourselves for money, recognizing our own value. Uh, this is what I teach. The first lesson I teach my students in my classes that you are infinitely valuable, even though you don't realize it, you don't know it. And the reason that this is a problem is because human beings are like seeds. So they have infinite potential, but they are not uh, at the moment the realizations of that potential. They have to be nurtured and groomed and uh, planted in the right soil and given the right kind of water. And then this... Uh, thing of infinite value and beauty can grow from us. But if we never um, even search for this inner growth, then obviously we will never find it. And we will remain seeds with unrealized potential. So the thing is that this message, the fact that our lives are infinitely valuable, is printed on the hearts of human beings. That is what makes it powerful. So when you give this idea to people, they, they respond to it because it's not something you're telling them from the outside. It's something that's already present inside them. So they respond to this uh, reminder that our lives are not to be wasted in pursuit of wealth and power. And there's more precious things, more valuable things we can do with them. But unfortunately, in the market society, you don't see any options. There are no... Um, places where you can go learn self-realization or self-actualization, except as a very many funky exercise, not of great significance in your lives. Something to do as a, as a fun uh, weekend, but, but not something which would uh, to do as to change your life. Um, okay, uh, good. All right, so the next, the next topic. Polanyi defines peace as a balance of power between two equally powerful nations with lesser powerful nations ready to join together against stronger ones. 
After Germany lost World War I, in addition to imposing impossible levels of foreign-denominated debt, the Treaty of Versailles required Germany to be permanently disarmed, no military ever again. This made the balance of power and therefore peace impossible, which made World War II inevitable. Please. Right. Well, this is now a specific historical mechanism which uh, Polanyi outlines. He says that over the 19th century, um, the European powers avoided wars with each other. And when wars would break, uh, would threaten to break out, their mechanisms were invoked to prevent them. And basically he says that it was the silent hand of the financial powers who would be affected by wars between the major powers that uh, utilized various mechanisms to prevent those wars. And one of these mechanisms was the so-called balance of power. So this is a particular historical episode. It it need not apply to the future. This is what actually happened in the past. But that doesn't mean that this is what is necessary for us in the future. There may be other ways to arrive at peace, uh, different from the mechanism which held in place for history until it was destroyed by the World War I. But the concept of a balance of power, regardless of the specific incident in history, the concept of peace being a balance of power, is that's, a, that's valid regardless of the history. That the definition of peace being a balance of power, being... Uh, no, I don't think so. I don't think that's what Polanyi is saying, and I don't think it's true. Oh. The balance of power is a mechanism which says... All nations are belligerents and they all have goals to achieve uh, power by fighting each other. Then the balance of power can maintain peace between them. But there can be other civilizations like China, which had many neighboring civilizations, but it never had the intention or desire to colonize them. So this process of colonization came out of the industrial revolution which created a massive excess surplus and you needed to find markets for them and the best way to do that since the world was consist of self-sufficient societies was to destroy those societies to make them dependent and to enforce this massively ridiculous theory of comparative advantage that you produce the raw materials and we will give you the finished goods and that way you get economy, societies attempt to be self-sufficient to neither uh, export nor import and not to be so much concerned with production as just uh, something to live off. I mean, you eat and you drink, but uh, you don't uh, have a consumer society. There are so many other things to do with life, to to learn, to to grow, to do athletics, to have experiences of different sorts, to socialize, to do so many other things, write, read, interact, and so on. Okay, so the balance of power was necessary because there was... uh, Okay, so that's interesting. Because of the nature of European society, which was very different from uh, other societies all over the world. Right, there's something that I, I that I can't quite put my mind around, but but there's something like there's so much pressure. If there was relaxation, if there was space to breathe, if there was space to think, then there wouldn't need to be a balance of power because there is flexibility in that society. There is space. But in this society with a free market, everybody's in everybody's face. Everybody is actively trying to to sell things and buy things from each other and to conquer other nations and so on. There is a constant pressure. There's a constant power struggle because people choose to exert their power. And if everyone is trying to exert their power, then a balance of power makes peace most possible in that situation. Hopefully that's at least enough to your understanding on saying. Yeah, I think so. Um, now I would like to say in response to that, there is a, Eurocentric worldview, which we have all adopted, which uh, says that, you know, the whole world was 
consisted of ignorant and savage barbarians and Europeans were a very advanced civilization and then they um, had a civilizing mission which they took to the corners of Africa and Asia and Latin America in order to spread the benefits of that civilization. So this is exactly the opposite of what really happened. Uh, the world consisted of multiple civilizations, the Incas, the Mayas, African civilizations which have been forgotten, some which have survived, Indians, um, uh, Americans, and so on, Chinese, Japanese, they, they, they were all, but ignorant and savage barbarians from Europe who somehow acquired a lot of power managed to disrupt civilization all over the world and they had this uh, ethic, uh, which uh, this, this mindset that basically if uh, two people meet, then one must be do dominate or be dominated. The idea that two people could just get along with each other or, and similarly two civilizations could uh, learn from each other and have social interaction, this just, just was outside the mindscape. So even you see, you look at H.G. Wells, The War of Worlds, if Martian comes, and they want to invade and occupy. Why? Why, why would anyone want to do that? Similarly, Star Trek. Um, people are always, whenever it's two civilizations, and, and you know this, uh, the, the War of Civilizations, what, what is that uh, book? The famous, uh, that now the time of War of Nations have come, uh, has gone, but now we must uh, face the War of Civilizations. Why, why can't... I mean, this this is in conflict with the idea of civilization itself. Mm -hmm. That um, civilization means learning to live in a civilized way. But here, the implicit I mean, the game called civilization is actually the game of barbarians. I mean, uh, every every civilization tries to take over and conquer all others. Yeah. Where does this yeah. rule come from? Why can't you live and learn to live in peace? Yeah, actually, so this, I, have, I have a much simpler way of saying this now that yes. I'm hearing you say this. If you choose to fight, that fighting is a core part of who you are, then yes, yes. balance of power is necessary. Yes, I think that's correct. But we could, we could choose to not fight. That's, that's, I mean, that's basically a question of childhood training. I mean, if you're trained to be aggressive, competitive, greedy, and um, look out for your own advantage and you're told that this is what the world is like the world this is world is a jungle and you fight for yourself and no one there's no one else for you i remember that actually i was in the 70s uh, there was this whole movement of looking out for number one and the um, glorifying selfishness and there was this uh, these kind of trainings which were run to assertiveness training, yes, yes to watch for your rights and uh, disregard those of others. So basically, um, barbarian training, one might say, how learning to how screw to screw people a, in a balanced fashion. <laughs> <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Next question, which is actually related, which is. You alluded to this before, the, that, that peace is a balance of power, but only in the current context because we choose to be belligerent. That that's, yes, that's, that, I think yes. that's... Okay, so the 100 years peace, the 100 years peace up into 1914, World War I, was not 100 years of peace. Not at all. It was 100 years of controlled violence. And I, and I use yes, the analogy... conquest and colonization. I use the analogy of, of a, a combustion engine as opposed to a bomb. A combustion yeah. engine is a controlled explosion, it controlled explosions. A bomb is an uncontrolled explosion. So right. to the powerful, to peace is violence by them against, against the poor, disadvantaged, and weaker nations. Yes, that's correct. The absence of peace is violence against them, which means in this context, a war between the great powers, a world war, because that hurts their pocketbooks. Yes. Please. I think that another way to look at this is to say that the world was a blank slate, uh, open to conquest. And so while there was some room on that planet, uh, they avoided conflict. There was in fact a pact, I have forgotten historically, among the European powers to separate the regions of area so that you get to conquer this land and we, I get to conquer so that we don't 
uh, fight each other when it goes when we are out to conquer the world. But by the early 20th century, about 90% of the world had already been conquered by the European powers. And so there was not much left for them to conquer further. So fighting among each other became inevitable because they were nowhere, there was nowhere else left to conquer on the globe. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, all right. So the international balance of power. Yes. In our current context, mm-hmm. in this terrible, you know, market, free market, whatever, fiction, the international balance of power is analogous to the individual balance of power. So, for example, Germany had no military after World War I, while other nations still had a military. Mm-hmm. So German citizens in this situation became so unhappy, they voted Hitler into power, which resulted in the, in the murder of millions. Right. On an individual level, Jeff Bezos, for example, has all of the power while Amazon workers have no power because they've been commodified. Right. But everyone goes to the bargaining table pretending as if they're equal. Right. And our unprecedented levels of inequality and the climate crisis, as I understand it, are the two biggest pieces of evidence to the consequences of this imbalance to show that we're, this is not peace and we are in for a world of hurt. Right. All right. So one thing I would like to say is that um, the idea of balance, basically when you talk about balance of power, you take the framework of the nation state as a given that they are nation states, then there's going to be balance of power. But this nation state idea itself is deadly. The idea that we are Americans and we have allegiance to this nation. And therefore, we are ready to die for this nation, to kill the Vietnamese. This is um, the just arrant nonsense. And uh, we have to think, these, these nations is an artificial community as intellectuals. We, we have been trained to think of our allegiance to the flag and uh, not our allegiance to humanity as a whole. So and and we can be trained to think at a higher level. We have to. We can think that we are all, uh, all of human beings are brothers and sisters, and this allegiance overrides all other uh, smaller allegiances. And so then we would laugh when somebody said that, okay, lay down your life to protect America against the Vietnamese or, or the Iraqis, or we would say that this is ridiculous nonsense. I won't do that. And uh, that would be, if if, uh, that was the popular view, then there would be no wars. In fact, uh, there's a very nice, and and this is, I think, a highest priority uh, because this uh, false identity that we have been imposed upon us, one of these false identities is the national one, and that's really caused an enormous amount of damage. And uh, there's this, book, uh, I'm forgetting, general, uh, about war is a racket. Yes, that's the name of the book. And um, basically he says that this whole war is an illusion. Uh, the the uh, leaders say that wars are being fought for ideological purposes, but actually just a small group of puppet masters who make an enormous amount of money from wars and of course, you can't get people to die for their country uh, unless you uh, string some very beautiful ideological uh, dreams in front of them, which are just all rotten lies. And so he says that only those people who vote for war should be eligible to go to the war. I mean, any, yeah. anybody who doesn't vote for war shouldn't be forced to fight, and that will mm. end wars. <laughs> <laughs> and what he says at a deeper level is that if you eliminate profits from wars, you will eliminate wars. So again, this war is an aspect of the market society. And and this is a very uh, important realization that wars are run by corporations for the purpose of making profits. It is not for any other reason. Hmm. And you just said that this idea of a nation state itself is, I don't remember how you said it, but, but it's not 
you know, real in a sense. And that's, I think, is even more true knowing how I've heard you say that the real, you didn't say it this way, but this is essentially the real power players on the world stage are not nations anymore. Are no They're longer nations, yes. They're corporations. Yes. And our national leaders are more than willing to destroy, to sacrifice, quote, America in the name of corporations and greed. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is something very important to understand and realize. And uh, MMT gets at this, although I, they have some, um, I have some disagreements with them about the history. But basically, I think that uh, after the Great Depression, chains were put on the financial industry, a lot of restrictions. And basically, the Reagan-Thatcher revolution cut, removed these chains. And financial deregulation was the key. Once the financial deregulation took place, then the financiers of the world could create arbitrary amounts of money. And then, because they can create arbitrary amounts of money, they can buy the whole planet, they can buy the government, they can buy the present. Every single congressman has enormous amounts of corporate donations in his pockets, and he simply cannot uh, speak against corporate interests or vote against corporate interests. The whole of uh, the, the vast majority of the American population wants no guns and no school shootings, but even though the President Obama <laughs> promised to do this and tried to do this, he just couldn't succeed against the corporate interests. So this is just an example. And there are many other, in fact, there are many other uh, specific political science studies that whenever the corporate interests collide with the public interest, then the corporate interests win in the Congress. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the 2014 Princeton study in particular. Um, okay. Okay, next question. During the Hundred Years' Peace from 1815 to 1914, the gold standard was the glue that held the world together, in addition to the balance of power, in addition to the liberal state and hot finance, which we're not going to go into. Hmm. Um, so the gold standard was the glue that held the world together, but for a terrible reason, and that is that self-regulating markets glorified global trade and against self-sufficiency. For example, why produce food at home when you can import better and cheaper food from a foreign land? But right. during a war or a disaster or a pandemic, you have to be self-sufficient. So the international trade in those times, when it really matters, becomes a detriment. So a gold standard was the anchor that for at least a while and at great cost to average people stabilized national economies so that they could reliably price goods and services with multiple currencies. And as an MMTer, the gold standard is totally it's anathema. When you yeah. you know, we let's go back on the gold standard. Let's have a balanced <laughs> budget. That's anathema. Yes. Yes. But the book opens up Polanyi opens up the book with saying that the gold standard is good and important in a sense. And it took me a long time to understand that yeah, it was good, but it was only good in this terrible context. Right. Right. That is correct. There's a key um, understanding that um, basically um, in a country you can either go for self-sufficiency and low trade, which uh, helps the masses, or if you go for high trade, you hurt the masses. Uh, and basically what, uh, I mean, one way to think about it is that you can export food which will make food expensive and the masses will be hurt. But if you export food, you will be able to import cars or um, some such thing. So in general, in the poorer countries of the world, international trade is extremely harmful because it harms the masses, but it helps the elite. And the same thing is true in the uh, rich countries as well for different reasons. And so there is always a trade-off between whether you want to achieve self-sufficiency and support the needs of the population or whether you want to enrich the rich while harming the public. So the gold standard was uh, wonderful for the elite rich who had the gold and terrible for the masses. 
And this uh, trade-off continues today, and it is basically the um, the key to understanding uh, many aspects of international trade and the controversies and the difficulties. And basically, you have to understand that international trade has different impacts on different subgroups of society, and they each project ideologies to support their interests against those of the other classes. So most of what you see out there in terms of trade theory is propaganda for one class or the other class. But uh, if we were to drop the idea of nations and say, let us think of the world as uh, one human, as humanity, and ask what kind of trading system would benefit the masses, we would come up with a radically different type of trade. Um, can you address briefly how mercantilism fits into this? Ah, yes. Mercantilism was an early. Basically, if you look at economic theories, you see that as the system was evol evolving, the theories were co-evolving with the system. So basically, when we talk about the gold standard for a century, that is just... Um, um, the mercantilism basically focused on acquiring gold. And, and how can you do that? By selling goods to the other countries. But uh, mercantilism period was a period of where you wanted money to conduct wars, whether it was with other states or whether it was colonizing wars. But you needed gold to pay your soldiers and, and to build your uh, industrial products and to import the things that were essential for um, your industry, like raw materials, etc. So basically, gold was needed for wars. But this uh, war was an expensive way to acquire resources of other countries. And after colonization took place, then um, you could do that by monetary methods. And today, after the world wars, basically the financial system is able to extract uh, revenue from all of the world without, in very peaceful ways. Like, for example, they have entrapped the U.S. Uh, students in a trillion-dollar debt. And so they will be working their jobs and paying off for the corporations, basically, because they will corporations will extract their tithe uh, in terms of the interest payments on the loans that they have been given for the study. Whereas the society itself could have arranged for this education on a cooperative basis simply by reorganizing the structure of rights. If we live in a society where every student is entitled to education as a human right, uh, then um, they wouldn't have to pay for it. I mean, it's the collective responsibility of the society to pay for the education of all the children living in our society. Uh, this simple ideological attitude would uh, change the world. Can you address how mercantilism, although it was not great for group, for, for average people, that that at the time and given the context of the world at the time, that mercantilism was an appropriate policy? Yeah, basically, when Adam Smith wrote, mercantilism was the dominant economic theory. And basically, Adam Smith is the transition point from mercantilism to free trade. And before Adam Smith, the nations were competing with each other on the battleground. And so for that book is about basically the uh, how the states can acquire power and power involves getting gold and all of the theories that the mercantilist theories are basically designed to set uh, practical advice on nations on how to acquire economic power but the nature of economic power changed as the uh, system developed and uh, you could get more power by trading with the enemy than by battling them. And so the system, economic system changed 
in that direction. Okay. Um, all right. My next question, I think, is the least well formed, but I but uh, I think it is certainly enough to get you to um, understand what I'm talking about. Um, okay. Fascism. Fascism is not a powerful movement in and of itself. Rather, it's something that fills in the vacuum caused by the suffering of the self-regulating market. So he talks about closer to close to the end of the book, he talks about maybe it's even in the notes, but he talks about how in history when the suffering was great because of a self-regulating market that that's when fascism rises. And that when yeah. that suffering is reduced, fascism disappears. So fascism is not something in and of itself in a sense but rather something that is just always standing at the ready to fill in the vacuum of the damage caused by the self-regulating market. Yeah, here I, my grasp on history of this uh, phenomena is not very strong. So I, I'm, uh, I just read Bolani on it, and that's uh, all I know. And basically what you have said is, is a good summary that when the Reg, uh, self-regulating market causes too much suffering then a uh, leader emerges who enforces his will on the people and people are ready to march to any tune to save themselves from suffering in the market and uh, viewed in this light the uh, USA is right for fascism today Today I talk with Assad Zaman about the 2001 edition of Karl Polanyi's 1944 book, The Great Transformation. Professor Zaman is a PhD economist based in Pakistan with many lectures, papers, and posts on the topic. This is part one of a two-part episode, but it's also part three in a larger four-part series on Polanyi's book. Parts one and two are with Jackson Winter. Jackson and I are two smart layperson MMTers trying to come to terms with the depth of what we just read and connecting it to our lives and MMT. As I briefly described in part one with Jackson, Professor Zaman and I are developing a free online course called Historical Context for Real World Economics. It's almost entirely through an MMT lens, but mostly it's history, not directly MMT. However, it provides critical context for those who want to understand MMT better. The course is produced by Activist MMT and hosted by Bill Mitchell's MMT Ed and Isha Krishnaswamy's Historically. There are five lecture chapters currently being developed, and I look forward to sharing them with you. The next seven lectures are all on Polanyi's Great Transformation. Links to the seven lectures, plus several related sources by Professor Zaman, can be found in the show notes. The Great Transformation reveals, essentially, that what we think to be a foundation of our economy and society is in fact an illusion. Specifically, 
Polanyi calls capitalism and its free or self-regulating market a stark utopia. By definition, a utopia, an imagined place where everything is perfect, is impossible to achieve. However, the attempt to achieve it, to eliminate literally all market regulation, can only result in the complete destruction of all human life and the land they live on. This is evidenced by our increasingly likely extinction at the hands of a human-created ecological crisis caused largely by unprecedented and still-growing levels of inequality and the mass exploitation of all natural resources, including most human beings. Here's Polanyi on the first page of the first chapter. Our thesis is that the idea of a self-adjusting market implied a stark utopia. Such an institution could not exist for any length of time without annihilating the human and natural substance of society. It would have physically destroyed man and transformed his surroundings into a wilderness. Unfortunately, the only way to maintain the fiction of the self-regulating market is to continue the mass exploitation of the poor. Instead of treating human beings as the infinitely precious and unique beings they are, they are rather treated as mere interchangeable and disposable cogs to run the unending greed machines, most often under terrible conditions. Polanyi calls this grave maltreatment the commodification of labor. The only way to get human beings to submit to these terrible conditions is to threaten them with an even more terrible condition, starvation and death. As quoted in the book, starvation can tame even the wildest beast. Not even the strongest man can overcome it. How is this starvation made possible? By eliminating the possibility of self-sufficiency. A major tool to do this was the invention of the concept of the private ownership of land. This justified the ejection of all former occupants who must now, for example, in modern society, purchase our food at a distant store. We have to drive to that store and the food plus the car and its gas must all be paid for with money, which in turn can only be obtained by laboring at the greed machines. What this all means is that the commodification of labor also requires the commodification of the land. Those being potentially annihilated by the destruction of the self-regulating market resist that destruction. This results in what Polanyi calls the double movement. This is the ideological battle that has raged for centuries, where one side tries to eliminate all market regulation while the other tries to protect itself by imposing some. When the amount of regulations are only enough to moderately reduce that destruction, as is unfortunately most often the case, then the resistance can only perpetuate and further enable the pursuit of that stark utopia. What underlies and justifies this horror is the most dominant religion in the world, which is greed. Without Polanyi's book and his work, this religion and its byproducts of inequality and mass exploitation are made to appear normal, inevitable, and unstoppable. In other words, natural. The truth that Polanyi's history reveals, and as is reinforced by my recent interview with Wesley Wiles, is that inequality, exploitation, and greed are not unfortunate but necessary. They're deliberate choices. Those who benefit most from the self-regulating market have incentive to deceive the rest of us into thinking that these terrible things are indeed natural. This is the role played by neoclassical economics to provide that official, neutral, and natural-sounding justification. The core problem in our society is not capitalism or the free market per se but rather the mass exploitation of the poor. Therefore, the core solution is to empower the poor. The nature of this empowerment is simple. Provide them with what they desperately need, like healthcare, education, a job, 
unpoisoned water, and a world that doesn't threaten to collapse around them. These things all serve to empower the poor, which ultimately reduces inequality of both wealth and income. We will annihilate the fiction of the self-regulating market, or it will annihilate us. There is no gray area. We will provide for those on the bottom, or we will go extinct. The first step is to emancipate ourselves from the chains of false history and false economics, and from the idea that everything horrible is unfortunate but necessary. Only then can we take a step back and start thinking of alternatives. As a final note, you'll hear some of Professor Zaman's thoughts on the potential form a sustainable future society might take. These are not ideas from the book, but his own, in an attempt to start a discussion on one of the greatest questions of our time. How do we resist and annihilate the self-regulating market, and what can and will society be like when we do? Perhaps you have some ideas of your own. Let's start that discussion. And now, on to my conversation with Asad Zaman. Enjoy.